Jesus makes it clear that we, we have to build on rock versus on sand. And so whatever you're trying to do, everybody has an idea. I'm trying to build up something, build up my parish, build up the church, the kingdom of God. However, we're trying to build something. And Jesus tells us that it can be built on rock or on sand. And we tend not to check the foundations. We tend to presume that the foundation is rock. But that rock is Jesus. That rock is disciples. So if the people involved are not disciples, then as a pastor, the people you're counting on are not going to be the foundation that allows for growth. So we have to we have to step back and first e- examine the foundations before we move ahead in, in what kind of building we hope to produce. Welcome to the Huntley Leadership Podcast. Helping leaders be a positive catalyst in the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. Welcome back to the Huntley Leadership Podcast. My name is Ron Huntley, and I am your host. I'm excited to be with you today as we dive deeper into the whole concept of strategic thinking and how we bring that to solving problems, how we use that to grow and impact the kingdom of God. I'd encourage you to head over to the website, check out our blogs. We have a new blog section there. I'm excited about that just to provide more support as you wrestle with issues of leadership in the work that you do. Today, I'm blessed to have Bishop Eric Pallmeyer with me. Bishop Eric is from the Augustine, uh, the St. Augustine Diocese in the United States. Bishop Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be with you today. Tell us a little bit about uh, being made a bishop this year, or 2022, sorry. 2022, yeah. yes, a uh, little uh, under nine months ago. So it was uh, quite exciting, an opportunity I'd never imagined. And uh, if you ever hear the stories of bishops, the, the call that announces it comes out of the blue. Uh, the Pope's representative in the United States calls with no warning uh, and in a matter of seconds uh, says, well, the Holy Father wishes you to be the bishop of a particular place and you hang up and know that your life is forever changed. I, I think it was probably the only time in my life I had to remind myself to breathe again after the <laughs> conversation ended. Uh, wow. And then it turns into a whirlwind that uh, I, I hope will end at some point, but uh, hasn't hasn't quite yet. That's true. You know, you become a, a priest, you, you discern, you you go to the seminary, you're discerning the entire time you're in seminary, there's all kinds of phases, but boy, when you become a bishop, it's like it right out of the blue. That's I never right. thought of there's that. There's no discernment, there's no preparation, it just, bam, there it is, and and off, off you go. I would say there's plenty of discernment, you're just not part of it. <laughs> that's true, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's well, right. That's, that's wonderful. part of what makes me say yes, is trusting the discernment that was yeah. going on ahead of time. Yeah, it wasn't your idea. That's beautiful. Well, congratulations. And I'm really excited. You know, we'd uh, touch base. We connected because one of our team members came across the document that you created uh, when you were still a pastor at another diocese. Uh, is that correct? And tell, tell yes, me a little bit about right. that. It just She was just so impressed because she, too, has a strategic mind. And she just thought, oh, my gosh, we've got to meet this bishop. His, his strategic approach to problem solving uh-huh. and creating vision was really inspiring. Well, I was glad you reached out and uh, glad that uh, somebody's new coming across that document because it was an, a joy to work on it. So I'm a priest of the Diocese of Little Rock, which uh, is the whole state of Arkansas. 
Nate? Uh, Arkansas is one of those not very Catholic states. So the whole state is spread out with small pockets of Catholics around. And I was a pastor there, a priest for 24 years before becoming oh, yeah. a bishop. Um, all but three of those years were as parish priests, pastor mm. most of that time. But for three years, I was not in a parish. I was a director of faith formation, uh, which includes evangelization and the director of permanent deacon formation. And those years turned out to be significant for me in my priesthood and certainly now as I uh, become a bishop because those those weren't those years weren't that long ago yeah. so as a priest uh, I felt frustration at feeling like things I was doing weren't reaching people deeply enough that there were a lot of people that were nominally connected to their faith and I didn't question so much their sincerity but just for some reason that a deeper awakening to the riches of their faith wasn't there that there was some kind of spark that they had that brought them to come to the church, but in a minimal kind of way. And so there's that yeah. constant longing of a pastor to connect with people more fully. Uh, but I would always end up frustrated, not only at that feeling, but at the uh, seeming inability to dig into what could be done about it, that I uh. might start to think about it and then be pulled in a million directions. And, and then uh, time goes by and I hadn't really made any progress on that. So I was grateful when the bishop in Little Rock um, assigned me to be the director of faith formation. At first, I was leery of it in the sense it was new. I had only been in a parish, never really imagined anything other than that, um, and didn't know how to go about starting uh, the job in the first place. Hey. So I remember my awareness of, uh, you know, a pastor is looking for support from the diocese, and so I didn't want to come in and have this diocesan role and then try to enact decrees that said, okay, everybody do this thing that I think you should do. And so I decided I would start by asking the parishes, what, what are the needs? Um, so I committed myself to visiting every Catholic church in the state, which was a great joy in itself. Um, a few things that came from that one was, I of course knew all of my brother priests, but uh -huh. mostly we would see each other in gatherings at the diocese, ordinations, most priests don't really get to see each other in their home setting. So I got to go into a parish and see uh, how a priest was in his parish and how he interacted mm -hmm. with his parishioners. And in each place I would visit and have a separate meeting, one with the pastor, and then another meeting with whoever they consider to be part of faith formation. So I would go and have these two different meetings and, and ask them, you know, what are their concerns? What do they feel like is going well? What are they frustrated uh, with? How can the diocese be of support? It did not take many meetings before I realized that I was hearing the same concerns in every place. Yeah. It didn't matter how big or how little, rural, urban, it didn't matter what language, none of that mattered. The same basic concern is, as I phrase it, it was how to connect with the disconnected. Uh -huh. And that meant for people's, first of all, it, it always means people's own family members. Everybody working in the church had family members that are not connected. And then their awareness of members of their community that they that ought to be there, that weren't, and how do we get connect with them, and people that show up for sacraments but don't really go to Mass on Sundays, and the whole range of uh. who is involved in that disconnect. So it just became obvious to me that's the primary struggle, so what can I do to try to bridge that gap. Now, at the same time, I was free to go 
to national gatherings. I was reading re resources from the wealth of Catholic, uh, kind of Catholic thinking about all of this and going to conferences that deal with this. And I was learning from people who'd been involved in it longer than me that they, it was a hopeful time, in fact, because for many of them, it seemed like there was a very definite shift toward evangelization. Like, what uh -huh. does that mean in our day and age? And then the other piece of having that job that that I see now as a great luxury was while I was responsible across all of the parishes, I wasn't as responsible for as many things. Uh -huh. And so I could, I had time to actually dive deeper and process, well, what is going on? Why are we having these problems? What are the, the obstacles that we need to address? So that's one thing I would recommend to everybody working in this is that we have to set aside time for some deep thinking. That's not a luxury. It's it's an essential that we tend yeah. to put on the back burner too often. Wow, what a beautiful! Just so many wonderful things that you've expressed in that. I remember years ago when I was in the I used to be in the pharmaceutical industry, and at one point I became a national sales trainer, and I would travel with these with these sales reps in their areas and go see their doctors, and I remember going to be with the very first person the very first time. And I thought I could leave this role now as a trainer and go back to sales and be a 10 times better salesperson working with one person for one morning. Like she changed me. I was there to help her. She changed me because I got to see what it looked like to be in a sales situation from a completely different angle. Really? I can't help but think about that as you got to travel to your brother priests in their place and see their spot, their people, that it's a different experience, isn't it? It is. Now, it was a great privilege just for the fraternal aspect of it to uh -huh. see the real love uh, that the priests have. You know, when I'm asking them what their concerns are, you're getting into their real heart. Uh, what yeah. is it that they desire for their people? And, and to see that that's shared um, by the, their, the teams that they have. So it's right. part of the optimism of that is that the heart of people working in the church is to can make that connection. It's just frustrating uh, not to see the path forward with that. Yeah. And sometimes my guess is too, Bishop Eric, when it's human nature when we don't know somebody or we don't know them very well and we look at their situation from a distance and see holes in it, we can tend to judge not on purpose, not with any malintent. It just seems to be one of our part of our human condition. But when we get to know them and get to know their story, that's a completely different beast. Yes, certainly. Certainly. And I think that that captures that that reality of connecting personally with people working in the church highlights what's going to be necessary to connect with the disconnected is that it does require getting to know somebody. There isn't a one size fits all. Um, I remember in one of the talks I heard somebody said one size fits one, and it <laughs> seems obvious to say it, but that's not how we tend to think when we're planning things. That's that's a good point. How can we have the biggest impact for the least possible amount of effort often seems <laughs> right. to be, you know. I remember the campaign, which I think was very generous on behalf of the donors, incredible on behalf of the creatives in terms of Catholics come home. And, and I think, you know, they ran these huge campaigns and they came back to what they left. And, and, and so they had left again. And, right. and right. so yeah. disengaging, you know, sometimes I wonder if engaging the disengaged doesn't have more to do with us than it does them, you know, uh, in terms of if, yes. if there isn't us and them, I wonder if God's saying to me as somebody in the church, Ron, how do you need to evolve? How do you need to change your language? How do you need to be more sensitive versus 
how do they need to change their behavior? How do they need right. to change their thinking? It's like, no, mm -hmm. it's actually less about them than it is about us in the church, I wonder. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we take a lot of things for granted and, and uh, don't. we have to really get down to the basics to see what it is that connects with people. Ultimately, I think one of the fundamental shifts that we have to say is we have to be more explicit in, in existing for Jesus. Uh, that we try to draw people into the church, and the church has its richness, but only in connection to Jesus. And we have a tendency to, to just, we mean when we say church things, like the word Eucharist, we mean Jesus. Yes. But for the disconnected, they don't, they don't bridge that gap. And so then they come back and they hear language still not familiar to them, even if it's well-intentioned, and, yeah. and it doesn't seem like anything new to them. That's a good point. And I wonder, too, like even with sometimes with people in the church, we don't even mean Jesus, or at least we don't know we mean Jesus. Like, right. so we can be disconnected and go to church, uh, you know, and so it's... Yeah, a, certainly, it, and that's that's true that there's plenty of the disconnected that are in the pews. And, and I know I'd put myself in that position for for many, many years, just not knowing that there was more, not knowing I could be in a... Not, not knowing that Jesus could actually change my life. I know, the, you know, theologically, yes, Jesus is fully present in the Eucharist. I understood all those two things. Right. I went to catechism class. I did all that stuff, born and raised Catholic, all my mom, you know. But it's like, did it make a difference? Um, I didn't, not, not that I could notice. And, and I don't even know that I knew to expect that Jesus could make a difference. Uh -huh. You know, I didn't necessarily see him making a difference in anyone else's lives. Yes. Or at least that was my experience. I'm not saying that was true, but that, that was my experience. That's shared by a lot of people. Um, but then ultimately, if we're going to talk about strategy in the, in the life of the church, the only strategy that has ever worked is individuals sharing their life with Jesus with other individuals. No other strategy has ever worked in all of history. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more because I loved your dog because it really did the whole starting point was encountering Christ, like getting to know Jesus. And and so tell me a little bit about that process, because it was funny when we, well, the, before we started recording, I was asked, talking about, you know, what was it like to be on that team that created that document? You're like, I was the team. It's like, holy <laughs> smoke. So, so with that context in mind, tell me a little bit what that was like putting that together. Well, so you mentioned that document. So a little background on that then is, so as I was visiting the parishes and and then doing going to the national conferences and and having time uh. to organize my thoughts then i needed to start writing down what that was and i wanted to try to give something that uh to parishes that they, that could help them go through their own processes so so after visiting the majority of those i started writing this document which i just titled the state of faith formation uh, that reflected on what I was learning from people, what uh, things I had heard they tried and didn't work, and and to try to give some framework that places could use. Because mm -hmm. I also understood that there is no kind of single effort that would work, and we tend in dioceses to say, well, here's this new thing, everybody do this, and that will work. And every parish, every pastor, every team has to figure out for themselves what are the resources we have? Where do we find our energy behind this? What can we do? So uh -huh. what I wanted to create was a framework where parishes could look at what is a, what is a typical kind of process uh, that will be necessary, but then you have to decide where to direct your energy and, and attention to begin with. 
And there are lots of ways that that was articulated. I, one of the things that I discovered was that most parishes were beginning to be aware of the wealth of Catholic resources uh -huh. out there. Um, but the problem with the wealth of Catholic resources is that it's overwhelming. You look at yeah. all these things, and each one of them is good on their own, and it's hard to know, well, where, where, do, we, where do we start? Uh, it's like being at the grocery store in the cereal aisle. There's too many options. We get paralyzed. So I, I wanted to try to narrow that down for people and, and to say, well, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? And here are resources that would accompany that. And there's a lot more resources even since that document was first published. But to try to take what, what I found to be the same ideas, but articulated in different language, depending on which organization you were reading. Mm. And so I wanted to capture it in a way that made sense to me. And, and hopefully I could could share with other people. So to try to have a logical approach to what are the stages that would be necessary for growth individually and as a, as a parish strategic plan. Uh, so I, my hope was to try to capture those ideas and, and also to try to highlight that we, we skip certain steps that we presume are in place when they are not. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think uh, one of the images I like to, to use is that Jesus makes it clear that we, we have to build on rock versus on sand. And so whatever you're trying to do, everybody has an idea. I'm trying to build up something, build up my parish, build up the church, the kingdom of God. However, we're trying to build something. And Jesus tells us that it can be built on rock or on sand. And we tend not to check the foundations. We tend to presume that the foundation is rock, but that rock is Jesus. That rock is disciples. So if the people involved are not disciples, then as a pastor, the people you're counting on are not going to be the foundation that allows for growth. So we have to we have to step back and first e examine the foundations before we move ahead in, in what kind of building we hope to produce. That is so well articulated. And, and I know the work that Sherry Waddell has done in terms of forming intentional disciples and realizing that whatever piece that she was working on assumed that people were disciples and she, the answers that she was getting, I think it was the Gibbs inventory, just was just bizarre. And, and because she was finding in the interviews that people didn't have a relationship with Jesus and she was shocked, right. especially coming from a different tradition. And, and so then going back and the numbers that she was able to uncover was really shocking. And, and to your point, that's the foundation piece. And so often, you know, actually I interviewed a fellow named Father Pierre Luigi, spent 18 years being a formator before he became a pastor. Um, and then in his work as a pastor, it's just a wonderful story of breakthrough and learning and growing and trust and evolving with people, helping him be, learn how to become a pastor. And, but I asked him, what would he do differently if he went back to being a formator? Like, what has he learned through this season of being a priest? And his answer surprised to me. He said, I wouldn't assume that the people that are in the seminary have a, have a foundational relationship with Jesus. And as formators, we assume that. But now that I've been a pastor, I realized we've made all kinds of assumptions for these young men that wasn't fair. And then they would find themselves in situations where they would be letting people down or disappointing them, but it's because of the assumptions that we were making as formators. And I just thought, wow, I didn't yes. I didn't imagine, but why would it not be just as true there as it would be in any parish, right? right? 
Well, and I find that when we talk about that need to be disciples, I find it's less that people are not disciples. It's that they have never had to articulate it. Uh, so they've experienced Jesus in some way. Right. And and there's a spark that's there and it's real, it's authentic, but we don't we don't articulate it and, and that's part of what formation should be, is that you have to you have to dig in enough to be able to sh- articulate what your faith really is. Because I again I find people have it. Me too. But they don't know how to articulate it and so it, it doesn't become attractive. Right. Um because uh, you know, I would have people come up to me when I would visit parishes for masses, especially on the weekends, you know, and they would tell me about their children that don't go to church anymore. And so I would ask them, well, have you shared your faith with them? And the answer I got almost universally was, well, I tell them they should go to church. (laughs) So I had to start, you know, and it was interesting because during those three years, since I didn't have a parish, I was uh, called on to substitute for priests frequently. So I was in different parishes all the time, and I ended up basically giving the same homily every week in a different location. Um, and it revolved around that question of being a disciple. I remember uh, in some of the materials I was using to focus on the kerygma, there was a question of, well, what difference has Jesus made in your life? Uh-huh. And so I would build a homily around that question, and you can see people, they're not ready with an answer to that. Catholics. Catholics who would say it's true aren't ready to explain exactly how that's true. Mm-hmm. But then I also realized that because they weren't sharing that with other people, before they ever share it with some stranger they meet, they have to share with the people closest to them already. Amen. So I started asking that question in the context of a homily, and then I would follow it up with a question that said, so now, if you are a parent, do your children know your answer to that question? And then you would see people kind of stiffen up in the pew because mm. they would see at the one at the same time that no, but they should. And I knew it worked wow. when people would walk out after mass and say, "Okay, Father, I'm going to go call my kids." And so they started to realize that that's a it's a different step. So I think it's there with people, but part of our formation of our staffs and our our volunteers and all of that is to to guide them to articulating it because in putting it into words, they find it deepening in their own life. Oh, you're absolutely killing me. That is so true, so beautiful. And that that is my experience as well. May I ask you, and, and feel free to say pass, we'll, last, we'll leave that for another podcast or what <laughs> have you, but at, at what point in your life did did you feel closest to Christ or did, did your relationship with Jesus actually change your trajectory? Not necessarily your vocation story, right? but your encounter with Jesus. Now they go together in my case. So sure. I've certainly reflected on this a lot. And I want to, in other resource that I, I'll use to kind of comment on this, Pope Francis in writing Evangelii Gaudium, uh, he talks about the possibility of newness in evangelization. And he, he has this beautiful quote, I think it's in paragraph 11, where he talks about new ways of speaking about the faith, new meaning for our society, and all this newness he attaches to what he describes the original freshness of the gospel. And I believe that's the moment where the power of the gospel becomes personal. You take ownership of it, you have an awakening to it. And so everybody has that moment, and for some people it's a dramatic shift in behavior, a a conversion of realizing the way I'm living is no good and I'm going to change everything. And that's dramatic and it's powerful. 
But for other people, it's less dramatic, but it's yeah. not that much less significant. Amen. And in my own life, I grew up in a very Catholic environment, my family very involved in the church, and I never had an issue with that. But that also meant that I never took real ownership of it. Right. Um, so I, I, I lacked the maturity to say, this is mine. And then when I went to college, there was a small step in that now I had to choose to go to mass on my own and nobody telling me to, and I did. And again, it wasn't, it wasn't even a big decision, but it, uh, it didn't change much. But then I, I had this moment of awakening that I would just say was really a, a, a discovery of the power of conversion in the present day. Without realizing it, I had just kind of presumed that the work of conversion and miracles and the work of Jesus was something that was real, but it happened a long time ago. Right. And I started learning about people's conversion in their lives and about miracles that people experienced. And I realized the power of the gospel is happening today. How did you start learning that? Like, where did that come um, from? Reading, that... I was going to conferences and, and my family, again, was involved in the yeah, church. Yeah, dad so was, was a deacon, wasn't he? You know, I was hearing people talk about it. And my grandmother was always trying to get me to read things because she was that Catholic that read every Catholic thing that, that came in the mail. <laughs> And so I started reading more about these stories and it just this this moment of awakening that this is happening now. And so that would be my original freshness. Now, sure. it didn't change my behavior much. I, I went to mass before that and I went after that. But it it caused a shift uh, in the way I looked at it. And, and I would say probably the biggest change was in how I prayed. I started to make prayer a priority. Uh, and it was in college, and so like many people, I would pray. Uh, somebody gave me the 15 prayers of St. Bridget, so these okay. prayers that you say every day for a year, and I was of the kind of personality that if I was going to start, I was going to finish, so I was committed to doing it. But in college, you know, the end of the day can be any uh, any early a.m. hour that you might imagine, <laughs> and I started to realize that wasn't working so well, and so I started to look ahead and say, well, I know if I'm going to be up too late tonight, I'm not going to want to do it then, so I'll do it at lunchtime. Huh. So just started organizing my prayer around my day around my prayer instead of just at the end. Wow. And so it just opened the door for God then to to kind of bring more explicitly that cultivation that had been done by people in my life up to then. That is so beautiful. It's fun hearing you talk about your family and their faithfulness and just the almost like the incubator of, of, of Catholic. Oh, it's just uh -huh. so beautiful. And your grandmother, you know, she read everything that was Catholic, trying to get you to read. And it sounded like her promptings worked because you started Eventually, to... Eventually, yes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and that really opened you up to something new. Praise. That's just so beautiful. And that's all it takes, isn't it? But, that, but the shift began, when, if I hear you correctly, Bishop Eric, is the shift began through the reading, this revelation... And then you start to you, you started to integrate order into your life to prioritize Jesus to prioritize your intimacy with God. Yes, and, and that was like the jet right. fuel probably for everything that uh -huh. came after. It did, and you know I finished that year of saying those prayers, and now I had this time in my life of prayer, and so I thought, oh, I need something else, and so I got a, a one of those Bibles that was laid out to read the Bible in a year. So yes, the second year I did that. So two years of having that become stable in my life that you know that opened the door for for God to speak and 
my life and in my vocation, but then it also established a habit of prayer that's just grown as formation came through mm. the seminary. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to the phrase of Pope Francis, the original freshness of the gospel, I think part of what's so important about that is that when we awaken to God, that it does not mean that that's the moment that God started calling us. Amen. Uh, he was always calling us all along, but it was never penetrating our hearts. Uh. So that means that whatever that original freshness was, that was the thing that got our attention. But it, it also means that that is probably a, kind of a reservoir of grace that remains untapped for people. Sure. You don't articulate what that original freshness was, probably there's some work of God in your life that could benefit you today. And that's where I think the newness that Pope Francis talks about, that you experience it, but then becoming aware of it, it, it allows that voice of God that spoke in your heart at a time in the past to give you the perspective on the, on the present moment, you know? So I, I, I used this in a talk one time and at the end of it, a woman came up and she said, you know, I realized that my original freshness was this tree branch in my yard, that there was uh -huh. some a turmoil in my family. And when things got to be too difficult in my house, I would go outside and climb this tree. And that's where I found peace. And now I realize that was God kind of protecting me in that difficult moment. She said, yeah, I need a lower tree branch than I did then, but uh, I need to find my tree branch back. That's so beautiful. That's a nice anchor, eh? That's yeah, that's so beautiful. It's so that's one of the things when I coach priests sometimes in groups. Well, uh, one of the very first questions I ask them is their encounter story. The video is all about that because if their vision is comes out of their encounter story or that freshness that you're talking about, that newness, then it it, it, it reignites and it reinspires these pastors, but. It's so funny because most of them will say, nobody's ever asked me. And, and so it wouldn't it be cool if we all did what you're doing in terms of, right. hey, let's make that normal. That if you're a part of this parish, then somebody's going to ask you, hey, tell me about your encounter story. When did, when did things get fresh? When did things get uh -huh. new? When did you realize something beautiful was happening and it changed your trajectory? And if we, and if we can, all of us in a parish begin to, expect to ask those questions like i love going to conferences and and to be able to say if we we're sitting at a table oh gosh you gotta listen to bishop eric's story about his, hey bishop eric share your story and when i'm at a table because i often because i ask people that i know their stories and so mm -hmm. i get them sharing them over and right. over and over and over again until it becomes normal well to go back to the idea of the parents you know when i tell parents then is so you need to you need to clarify your own original freshness. What is that moment in your life? And then I want you to call your kids and say, look, I feel like I haven't ever really shared my faith. I'm sorry. I've been judgmental. Yes. I'm always pressuring you. And I realize that that's not helpful. And I'm, I just want you to know I'm sorry for that pressure. And then I tell them, when, wait for a moment for them to pick the phone back up off the floor again. <laughs> Make sure it's you. Check the number. Yeah, so like, you, what, what is this? And then say, I, I really want to share with you like why this is important to me, because yeah. I think, you know, parents think that their kids don't want to hear that. But what kids don't want to hear is judgment and yeah. and, you know, bossing them around. But we never reach a point where we're 
where we we don't care about what's going on in our parents' life and heart. Amen. Um, and so to say to your child, like, I want to share why this really matters. If you've prefaced that with an apology for bossing them around and judging them, they're going to be very interested in, in what's really going on. And then to go to Sherry Waddell, as you mentioned, I think her great critique is that we don't appreciate the delicacy of those early thresholds. Right. So we have to share what's going on in us and then give less than we would want and let them kind of soak it in and drive the next questions about, tell me more about that. Um, um, but if we approach it with people that way, the people closest to us, they're going to want to know, Yeah. Uh, especially children, because that as a priest, I can tell you from hearing confessions, people never reach the point where they don't care what their parents think. Amen. Uh, and so to, to bring that conversation into the life of faith more explicitly about what difference Jesus has made in my life, I think that would go a long, long way to evangelizing in today's world. That's absolute gold. You, you Bishop, you said the whole idea of, you know, being a pastor for as long as you were, the bishop inviting you to take a role of the diocese, it allowed you the time to refocus and to go back and have conversations. If after those three years, you were invited to take a parish again, how would you be different? How would you so have been different? Yeah, I was, in fact. So after those three years, I, I was, was um, back into a parish for a couple more years before oh, becoming lovely. a bishop. So I, I, I did have the opportunity to, to try to work on that. And I would say that the first thing I would recommend is that we have to commit to going slow, first of all, okay. um, because we have to help the people that were counting. A pastor is counting on a lot of people. Um, he can't do all of it himself. So he needs to invest in helping those people be the foundation, which is yeah. a disciple. Um, and people don't just jump right to being a disciple. I think that you can be a disciple in the sense of the personal uh -huh. commitment to Jesus, but to be a worker in the church, a missionary disciple, as we say, um, that takes formation to be able to be able to share what is in me to be to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in me. That's not a simple conversation. So we have to be more aware personally. Uh, and most of us don't have that self-awareness. Uh -huh. Then we have to share it in a lot of different contexts because how you share your original freshness is very different if you're sitting down over coffee with a friend than it is if you're, you know, standing at the at the cash register at Starbucks, you know. So those are True. those are both contexts where we should do that, but we have to practice how to do that. And and the practicing of that conversation takes time. So as a pastor, I think the approach, so I was there for two years and I feel like I was still in the foundation building mode right? Of, of making it the norm that the people I was counting on, the people who are trying to carry on ministries get into the habit of are identifying their own version, their own uh, story of faith and sharing that with people in different settings. So we were starting to build that up. And before launching into any larger effort, yeah. uh, I felt like it took a critical mass of people capable of, of really articulating that. So another example I would use with parishes would be 
to highlight the importance of this time and the need for formation. So say you had a diocese where you had so few priests, you were going to have to close a bunch of parishes, and obviously that is happening. Yes. But then right as you were about to, 20 young men came forward and said, no, we'll be priests. Well, you would celebrate that, and you would be thrilled, but you would not say, okay, we'll go in that parish now because we don't want to close it. Uh, you would say, that's great, but you still need your eight years of formation. Right. We don't want you in that in that parish until you've had your formation. Uh -huh. So we would still go ahead and close those parishes while we did the work of forming those young men to be priests. So I think that's true in general, that formation takes time and we shortcut that time uh, to our own detriment. It doesn't, it doesn't get us there faster. Uh, it prevents really the, the building higher that uh -huh. comes with that foundational rock. So it sounds like that time doing the work with the bishop for the diocese and connecting with your brother priest really helped you understand how important that piece was. Did you have a tool that you were using to implement that or was it just one-on-one -on -one time and how you'd schedule your time through the week? Like how did you how did you for mobilize me, that? Yeah. Yeah, so I think then I try to point people toward resources um, and, and help them be strategic. So I mentioned there's so many great resources and a lot of parishes yeah. were using them. And so I would ask people, well, why did you use that? And the answer was, well, whoever made the decision came across it and thought that was good. So there was never a strategic reason for using it. And that's no criticism of what they were using. Yeah. But they weren't matching the resource to what they felt the need was. Right. Because they just looked at this need as this kind of massive thing. So let's get started. Instead Tip away of, at it. Instead of saying, well, where should we really employ our resources first. Mm. So in the building up of disciples, uh, I would say there's a couple of things that have to happen. One is the, the whole notion of the kerygma and, and helping people be able to articulate that. Um, and so there's various uh, kerygma retreats and resources out there for getting people to articulate that. What did you then, use? Um, so I used a lot of materials from the Diocese of Green Bay. So a lot of uh, what I had in Little Rock, I had gotten, there's a woman, Julianne Stans there that I <laughs> met at some of these conferences, and she had done a lot of work uh, in developing resources that really resonated with me, and so we would uh, use those, and one, uh, the Kerygma retreat that, that she had developed, I would use, um, and then the eventually the Siena Institute with Sherry Waddell, they created their Ananias training, uh, so they started with the called and gifted charism work. But what I felt like was missing from a lot of resource, a lot of national resources was the training in one-on-one. -on -one. Uh -huh. um, and, and the training that was there tended to focus on the more long over coffee conversations, which right. are great and they're needed. But the evangelization conversation usually is quick and out and not with somebody that wants to hear much. It's about those thresholds that if somebody's curious and you give them more than they want, then you put out that spark. You don't, you don't nurture that spark. Uh. So the training and how to have the quick and out conversation. So imagining the disciple who is on the soccer sidelines with another school parent uh -huh. who doesn't go to church on Sunday and they're both getting ready for first communion. So what does that conversation look like? That's very different 
then the yeah. sitting down and having an intentional discipleship conversation. Both are necessary. Uh-huh. Um, but I felt like the Ananias training starts to get into those initial sideline conversations. So starting with helping your people closest to being disciples, articulate the charisma in their life, uh-huh. and then giving them some concrete training on how to have the conversation in different contexts. And the more people trained like that, then the more flexible you can be in how to engage the different aspects of parish life that already exist everywhere. Right. That's neat. Oh, that's cool. I, it's wonderful. I hear the conviction. I hear the learnings of that time that you got to shift your focus as a priest and then to be able to be convicted on those things and then to be able to find tools and connections through through networking that you were able to employ and start to experiment with. And then that's just beautiful. I just love, it's just so intentional. Yeah, you know, it's so purposeful what I'm hearing from you as a priest in terms of the impact you're trying to have and 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 uh, and the search for tools and people and information and ideas and books and resources. It, there is a hunger there that's seeking right. to be. And to it just become. takes time. I think patience is a key thing. We want to fix it all yesterday. Right. And we didn't get here quickly. We've gotten here over generations. And yeah, the the building up is going to take time. So, Bishop Eric, tell me, how does that? So, and again, thanks so much for the insight into that evolution in terms of your faith and, and your and your influence through your priesthood. How does that? How did that prepare you for becoming a bishop? Tell me a little bit about that. I know that's a big, big surprise when you get the call, yes. as we talked about earlier. But, but then, and also, you know, a whole new level and way of living out influence and your vocation as a priest. So tell me a little bit about your transition into being a bishop. Okay, well, so I will say that uh, the principles that that I learned are the same principles no matter what scale you're operating on. So whether you're trying to influence your family or a parish or a whole diocese, the same principles apply. And in the document that I wrote, I included, you know, what is common language for business leadership about spheres of influence. Uh, and I feel that that's a strategic piece that's too often overlooked, that we want to reach the whole world, but we don't actually have influence over the whole world. Um, and so the only way to expand our influence is to have an influence on who is within our sphere. Amen. And that's true, again, regardless of the scale. Yeah. So becoming a bishop versus being a pastor doesn't change that. It means I have to assess uh, what is the influence that I have here in this uh-huh. context. Um, and then I have to focus my energy not on where I hope this will be years down the road, but on the initial steps that are necessary. So those same steps I just described about articulating your own conversion to the charisma in your life and then uh-huh. learning how to share that with people. So as a bishop, then my job would be to say, well, who are those people that I have an influence with? Um, and then I also have to accept the fact that not everybody's going to adopt this equally. And so rather than get frustrated by the ones who don't, which is another uh-huh. kind of aspect of human nature, is to really take the ones who are those early adopters and say, let's let's dig in deeper with them, uh-huh. because that's how the sphere starts to expand. Yeah, 
and so if I have something that I want to introduce to a whole diocese, well, then I'm going to focus first on those pastors that get on board with that um, and those staff members that are on board with that uh, and invest time in helping them take next steps and then let their example be the what then draws other people in. Because I do believe uh-huh. that the heart of our people in the church, our priests and our staff members, our volunteers, the heart of them is for the disconnected. I think what they're lacking yeah. very often is not faith, but it is strategy. And, and so being able to think like that, being able to commit time to working through that, people arrive at that willingness at different levels. And so <laughs> rather than try to convince them to change the way they do things, I try to let people who feel that frustration enough to say, all right, I want to act a little differently, let them come forward. And that's more than enough to occupy your time. Uh, ah, so if ah, you focus ah, on ah, those ah. people, you're not wasting time. You're, you're more yeah. likely to waste time by trying to convince the unconvinced. Um, so here, here's another uh-huh. thing I learned that, that I, I heard repeated over and over again, and I suspect expands far beyond my diocese of Little Rock or this diocese of St. Augustine is I would ask people about what they had tried and they would come up with some program, some effort, and they would put a lot of energy into it. They would promote it. They would invite people. And then I would ask, well, how did that go? And they would say, well, the same old people came. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Word for word. Every time. What I started to realize was two things. One, I, I think most people are aware of is that the people we hope to come don't come because They've already told us they're too busy and they're not interested, so we shouldn't be surprised. But the other piece I think uh-huh. that a lot of, of a lot of strategic planners miss is that saying, you know, the same old people come presumes that the same old people don't need anything, uh-huh. that they're finished products. Well, the reason the same old people come is because they have a hunger to continue growing and they need guidance on how to grow. And we tend to let them cycle through a deeper understanding for their own faith, and we never help them move out towards sharing that faith with other people. So when those same old people show up, then instead of just giving them the next Bible study that they've learned about, we need to focus that Bible study on what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be given the Great Commission? How do you start living your faith as someone sent uh, and not just as someone called. Gosh, if you ever get tired of being a bishop, I'd love to recruit you to come coach with me. <laughs> I just love listening to you. This is so good. This is cool. I, I, I want to go back a little bit. And okay. you, you said something um, which I fully agree with, but I want to provide you another perspective and get your comments on it. And okay. so what I'm hearing you say is, you know, you're go- as a bishop, you're going to want to, you know, figure out if there's a new initiative, who's on board, and then work with them. But, and I, I don't disagree. And there's a really strong pull from other people who would say, well, no, I have a responsibility to shepherd everybody, and so I'm going to treat them all the same yeah. um, mm-hmm. because that wouldn't be nice of me to judge that. And so um, I got to treat everybody the same. What would you say to that? And I mean that earnestly because it, it yeah, really certainly. is something I hear over and over again. Yeah, I would say I would say that that's true. Then the question you have to ask is about timing. 
Um, there's no, nothing you do affects everybody at the same time. Um, and so you're not ignoring the responsibility to the people that are farther away. Uh -huh. uh, it's recognizing that in order to reach them, it takes certain things in place. Uh -huh. um, and so I have to use what is within my sphere of influence again. So I'm not by identifying the sphere of influence, I'm recognizing that those people farthest away are still my responsibility, um, but I have to move toward them. Uh, and I can't move toward them alone. And there isn't enough time in the day to even have a conversation with every parishioner in a parish. And, I, and so, yes, you're responsible, but part of being responsible is enlisting the help of others. God could certainly infuse knowledge of himself in each of us individually, but that wasn't God's strategic plan. God sent his son and his son Amen. gathered followers and his followers, sh he shaped his followers. He sent them out. Um, he didn't even keep all of the followers he initially called to himself. Uh, so he, the design of God is, is to give the great commission and entrust that work to others. So to be a pastor or a bishop, that's the model of Jesus that we're following. Oh, I'm going to wrap it up there. Bishop Eric, it has been such a treat having this conversation well, with thank you. thank you. I, I like talking about it. <laughs> yes, I can tell. And it's beautiful. It's so inspiring and, and so logical and so rational. I really believe this podcast is going to be a blessing to so many. Now, pre before we hit the record button, you mentioned you were recently on a podcast that's hosted in your diocese. What's the name yes. of that podcast? Oh, we'll give a shout out there to the yeah. Catholic Talk Show. The Catholic and, uh, Talk so Show. It's a group of uh, group of three men, one priest and two laymen that have known each other for a while and uh, built up a big following. So I got to have a version of this conversation with them not that long ago. That's wonderful. So those of you that want to hear more from Bishop Eric, just head over to to that podcast and and start listening to those fellows there. I hope to meet them at some point again. Bishop Eric, thank you so much for all you're doing thank and you, sharing I your insights. Appreciate the invitation. You're welcome. You're welcome. So thank you guys for listening. God bless you. Please uh, hit the subscribe button. Share this podcast with a friend. Uh, this is great, great, great conversations to have as parishes, as priests, as bishops, so that we can do everything we can to continue to evolve as leaders, to grow our skills and our insights so that we can glorify God with all that we say and do. Thank you for everything that you're doing to make your parish great. God bless you all. I want to encourage you as you lead this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time. And remember, if you're still breathing, you are powered for impact.